SiriusXM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. A Stanford Law School alumnus and founder of Ozzy Media. So Ozzy was always kind of reminiscent a little bit of what Wired Magazine used to be in the tech space way back in the day, if you remember that. An American entrepreneur and multi-Emmy winning journalist. Think big but be humble is Ozzy's motto. We want people to think big about the world but, but operate humbly in it. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Carlos Watson. Now here's your host, Howard Wolf. What do we mean when we talk about the media these days? In olden times, it meant print newspapers and magazines as well as television. These days, however, the basket called media contains much, much more. These days, media includes digital newspapers and magazines, emails, websites, podcasts, festivals, and more. And the basket of items is changing routinely. But one thing does not change. The role that the media play in informing and educating us all. And one of these media companies, Ozzy, is doing it their own way. Ozzy's mission is to help curious people see and engage with the world more broadly and more boldly. Carlos Watson, Ozzy's founder, is a Stanford Law School alumnus having earned his JD at Stanford in 1995. And he's spent the past nearly 25 years as an entrepreneur in the worlds of education, journalism, media, and television. He knows how to break through and give media consumers what they want. And he's here to tell us how he does exactly that. Carlos, welcome to the show. Hey, Howard, it's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. All right, we're going to get to your many accomplishments in a couple minutes here, but I got to ask you a question. You were labeled a problem child early in life. I read that and I said, how can that be? What was that all about? <laughs> Uh, you know what? I was uh, I grew up in Miami, uh, the second of four kids, three wonderful sisters. Parents were teachers. All of it sounded like a dream. You would have thought this is going to be a good kid. He's uh, you know, he's got good parents. He's got good siblings, even had a terrific grandmother. And so all the good stuff. And and yet I ended up getting into some early trouble in school, got kicked out of kindergarten, which uh, you ask, how does someone get kicked out of kindergarten when all you've got to do is drink your juice and, and quietly <laughs> next to Howard? <laughs> and, uh, and yet I still managed to do that and, 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 you know, got politely asked to leave a few other institutions early on and, uh, and uh, or not politely. And, uh, and so I would say I really kind of didn't really get onto a better track until I was probably you know, 11, 12 years old, which I know sometimes when people actually run into trouble, uh, but I, I got a head start on everybody and, you know, got asked to leave the building at age five. And, and again, at a, you know, several other times between five and 12. 
I love that history. That's a great talking point, huh? Yeah. I got kicked out of kindergarten. You can't have many people say that. Yeah, so, well, happily, I guess. And, uh, uh, you know, but but thank goodness for my parents, Howard, who were older parents. They, uh, um, you know, you were, for that era uh, to have had four kids, they got married late in life, their mid thirties, which in that era was, was, was later. And they had four kids between the ages of 36 and 41, which today would be like 46 and 51. And, uh, and my mom always said that it was a good thing that she was an older mom, because she said, if I hadn't been, she said, honestly, I would have been overwhelmed by all the teacher complaints and concerns and worries and all the conversations. She said, I was able to navigate that much better as a 40 year old woman than I would have probably as a, um, as a 20 something. And so I, uh, you know, I won the lottery and, and ended up with some uh, good parents who uh, who persevered through what I'm sure was some uh, uncertain and not very fun times. So you mentioned you grew up in Miami. This is the absolute most multicultural city in the entire United States of America. I mean, it is an amazing place. How did growing up in Miami inform your life? Yeah. You know, it, you, you put your finger on it. It was a very global. Your backyard was global. So my best friend, Otto, uh, you know, was the son of uh, two Cuban uh, refugees, um, you know, Cuba, and that was a part of our life. My dad was from Jamaica, and so lots of his friends in and around. My mom worked at something called Florida International University, and so FIU, sure. Yeah, so we would regularly, uh, she'd get invited by her students from all around the world to have dinner, so it might be Middle Eastern food, it might be uh, Belgian food, it might be uh, food from Botswana, so we were we were constantly getting to, to meet the world. And uh, I think from a very early age, that idea of collaborating and enjoying difference and enjoying you know, different food at your buddy's house, right? Which is sometimes the first way or hearing your buddy's parents speak a different language. Uh, all of that was, was a wonderful part of, of getting connected to the world at a very early age. So I love Miami. For that, I love Miami for having been kind of uh, my global passport. Oh, I love that your global passport. Well, speaking of passports, you've checked your um, passport at a number of great universities, right? Undergraduate at Harvard, graduate school for law school at Stanford. So, why Stanford? I mean, this is a Stanford program, so obviously I've got to ask you that question. But I mean, here you went Harvard undergraduate, you could have gone to Harvard Law School, I suspect, but you chose Stanford. What drew you out west? You know, uh, it's funny, I, I was thinking about staying in my hometown for law school, the University of Miami, um, and I thought about some of the East Coast law schools, as you mentioned, and then I came out here to Stanford, and I'd come out as a high school senior, and I'd seen all the pretty palm trees and the people riding bikes at unbelievable speeds and all the other kinds of uh, good things. I'd met so many nice people uh, uh, back in those days, uh, I'm sure uh, they're out there somewhere, but I still remember all the nice people who had me as a, uh, as a visiting high school senior. But when I came out for law school, um, there was so much magic. People wanted to be here, Howard. They wanted to be here. And as you know, so many people don't want to be at law school. And right. yet at Stanford, it was such a clear difference. It was not only among the top law schools, it was a rare place where there was positive energy, where people weren't just checking a box and doing it because it was the thing to do on the way to something else, but because they wanted to be here in that moment. And there was a wonderful guy named Tony West, who um, I'm sure you know, who's the chief legal officer at Uber and had his sister-in-law not become vice president, I would have told you that, that Tony West was going to become uh, <laughs> one of our uh, first vice presidents and presidents. He was uh, the president of Law Review and 
uh, San Jose native and just, just a wonderful human being. And I remember he so kindly called me when I was struggling with that decision. And, you know, I was 21, 22 year old kid trying to figure it out. And my mom and dad had very strong opinions, uh, which did not include me moving to the other side of the country. And, uh, and, you know, Tony was just so generous and so thoughtful. And then there was a very wonderful woman named Faye Deal who worked in the uh, financial aid office. Oh, she's an icon. Uh, yes. Deal and Ruth Bersiaga and Abra and all the good folks. And there were just so many nice people. And Paul Brest was the dean back then. And there were just so many good and nice folks who, uh, um, Sally Dickinson, I, I, um, she was wonderful. She was one of the assistant deans. And I will tell you, Howard, they spent way too much time talking to me, but it made a difference. And I knew in my heart I wanted to do it, and they helped my head come along. And so um, much to my parents' initial chagrin, <laughs> I, uh, I headed 3,000 uh, plus miles away, and, uh, but they later loved it. And I'm proud to say I later moved them out to the Bay Area. And so uh, my mom passed, but my dad is still a Bay Area resident and a proud Bay Area resident. I love that. Stanford gear with pride. All right. So those three years, you know, on the East Coast, they say that law school, they scare you to death the first year, they work you to death the second year, and they bore you to death the third year. But I hear from a lot of Stanford law school grads that it's different than law school at Stanford. So fondest memory. And what's that one memory that still gives you nightmares? <laughs> Stanford law school. Oh, man. Well, there's so many. One of the fondest memories, there's so many. I mean, Miguel Mendez who was a professor of criminal law. He was from Texas. What a wonderful guy. He was a longtime public defender before he got into that. And he walked up behind several of us guys. It was dusk. And this may not sound funny to people, but it was funny at the time. And it was indicative of just a wonderful spirit and just a beautiful sense of humor. And Professor Mendez walks up behind us. We didn't know who it was. And he said kind of a deep, he like, he made his voice especially deep. He said, you boys lost <laughs> and, uh, and we turned around and it was him and he was smiling and laughing. And um, it was, you know, he, uh, Professor Barbara Babcock, uh, Joe Grunfest, all of the professors brought extra love uh, uh, um, and they were just so warm uh, to, to students like me. And it wasn't the kind of far removed that you saw at so many universities. That's one of my fond uh, uh, memories. It wasn't the paper chase. Uh, you know what? It, it wasn't the paper chase. You know, look, it was hard work. It was challenging. Uh, I remember trying out for law review and, you know, being scared to death and, you know, not having any sense of whether or not it would work out. And, you know, I remember uh, Jeff Connaughton, who was a year older than me, you know, uh, both joking and giving me comfort. He said, look, he said it probably was the worst submission Oh, but at least you'll still be a student. And uh, he'd already known that I had made it, but he wasn't telling me. Instead, he <laughs> just ribbed me. So I, I, I had lots of good experiences. I probably would say one of the toughest experiences. Uh, I remember uh, California Bar in those days was the toughest. It was the three-day bar as opposed to a two-day or kind of a one-plus-day bar. Had the you know lowest passage rate, all the kind of drama they put around it. And of course, I had an older grandmother who you couldn't, you couldn't not pass something like the bar. That would not have been okay. That would have been a problem. And, uh, and so after the first uh, morning, they tell you, you know, don't talk to anyone about it because it'll just freak you out. But one of my friends, she was so nervous that she promptly starts talking about the first question. Uh, and I realized that she's talking about it, that I'd messed up on it. Oh. And 
I was in such a cold sweat over it, but in a weird way, it was good because it made me not relax. I probably was a little too confident going into it and it made me not relax and made me take every piece of those three days seriously from that point on. And um, so, but, but, but I, I loved and felt super grateful uh, that I got a chance to be part of the uh, part of the Stanford family. So you go to law school, but then you don't go into the law. You go to the internationally acclaimed McKinsey and Company, the strategy consulting firm for a short stint. And then you become an entrepreneur yeah. and you start Achieva College Prep. So yeah. what was Achieva? What attracted you to this business opportunity? And why not just go join some fancy silk stocking law firm? Yeah, well, I did go to work for law firms. Uh, Larry Sonsini uh, uh, kindly brought me in there. And I worked down at Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher with a bunch of good folks uh, there, and uh, and and I enjoyed that. But um, McKinsey was offering free food at the Stanford Faculty Lounge <laughs> as a first year, and and Howard, my wallet was a little light in those days. And you know, they asked a bunch of us students to come, and I said no, and they said, "Well, free dinner." And I said, "What time?" And so I was, you know, I was easy. And so I, I got introduced to consulting, which I hadn't heard of before in the business world. And so I started to think it had percolated. And then um, Professor Bill Lazier, may he rest in peace, yes. wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guy, all kinds of wonderful. Uh, he taught a terrific course called What Lawyers Should Know About Business. And it basically was a mini MBA. He did case studies. And he really, he got my mind going and, and thinking yet more. And I started thinking about different business ideas. And then, you know, the McKinsey opportunity really uh, formed and I got to work there. And as I was going into McKinsey, a good friend of mine, uh, Stanford grad, she's on the board of trustees, Lorraine Powell Jobs, uh, business school grad. She said, Carlos, she says, you're an entrepreneur. You got to promise me that you're not going to stay there forever. And she said, I'm going to put the clock on you. And so she put the clock on me and she said, you can only be there a couple of years. So I had Lorraine going back and forth in my mind. And, uh, and then uh, Professor Crawford, George Crawford, who's another wonderful, Stanford, all kinds of great professors. Professor George Crawford, um, uh, I told him that I was going to leave McKinsey to go start this uh, education company. And uh, he immediately, when he heard it, instead of being excited, he said, I want to come meet you for lunch today. And so he came over to McKinsey and he met me for lunch. And he said, you were one of my favorite students ever. I expected more out of you. I'm disappointed to hear that you're leaving something good like McKinsey so soon. And, uh, and so, you know, Professor Crawford didn't think it was a good idea. My dad didn't think it was a good idea. And thank goodness for my mom, who when I asked her, she said, all I know is I love you no matter what. So you're gonna be fine. And I thought, all right, the one who matters, you know, put her thumb on the scale in the right way. And uh, along with one of my sisters and a, and a friend from college, we started Achieva, the three of us. It was a college prep company. And so the idea was that lots of high schools had one college counselor for maybe 3000 students. And that consequently lots of our kids never really got to go through the college admissions process properly. They didn't necessarily know where you could get financial aid from, what an essay is, who would you ask for a letter of recommendation, all that. So we created uh, software books and workshops for big school districts, New York, Chicago, Miami, that they would use hopefully to reach more students. And we worked with about 100,000 students a year, helping them through the college admissions process. And uh, after about five years, we sold it to the Washington Post, who at the time owned Kaplan. And merged Achieva into Kaplan. And it was a, uh, it was a really good experience. And I was, I was glad that I got a chance to uh, build something with. And then you sold it 
And yeah. then it appears that you got the bug in a big way for television. So you were on CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, PBS, you name it, you were on it. Yeah. What attracted you to television? Was that always a part of your game plan? I know you always sort of deep down inside, you always thought of yourself as a journalist. Yeah. Tell me about all that. Well, you know, I, I no, I can't say it was part of my plan, but it but it sure turned out to be a beautiful part of the journey. I uh, um, it, and it was a little bit of an accident. While I was running Achieve, I did some guest appearances on some of the uh, shows like Squawk Box and Today Show, and I got a call from a guy that I was sure was a prank because I had a good friend, Rachel Donaldson from college, who loved to do pranks on me. And Rachel, if you're listening, I'm I'm sending this back to you. And <laughs> Howard, she would have people call me. She says, "Carlos, yeah." Um, were you just at a party in L.A.? Yeah. Look, we've got this new movie with Halle Berry. We're looking for a fresh face. Would you come have breakfast? I'd say, of course I would. And then Rachel would call me back five minutes later, and she would say, what an asshole. She's like, Halle Berry doesn't want to have you in a movie. We're not talking to you. And she was like, what kind of guy thinks that he's getting a random call like that? So <laughs> she was kind of Lucy to my Charlie Brown. She was moving the football all the time. We were having fun. But I went down to L.A., and she and her uh, her, her then uh, uh, fiance Simon uh, said, "No, that's that wasn't Rach." And so I was upset with her. But it turned out a real guy had called, whose job was to find new faces in TV. And uh, I ended up beginning to do guest appearances, and guest appearances led to me, as you said, anchoring shows for CNBC and CNN, MSNBC, and PBS, which which has been a lot of fun. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with media and entertainment entrepreneur, Carlos Watson, next. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Carlos Watson, entrepreneur, journalist, and television host. A little bit over seven years ago, you form Ozzy. Yes. For the listeners, no. what exactly is Ozzy? Is it a media company? Is it an yeah. entertainment company? Is it a combination? It's yeah. not clear. Um, unless you really dive in to understand that Ozzy's a pretty cool company that deserves some explaining. I, I'd love to explain. Ozzy is a, I guess, a news and entertainment company, very modern uh, media. We started as an online news magazine. So every day we would send a morning newsletter and an afternoon one, one to catch people up. But the afternoon one was the magical one. It was to tell you about the new and the next, rising stars, new trends, big ideas, a year or two before the mainstream would catch on. So we wanted to tell you about a young comic in South Africa before he was Trevor Noah of The Daily Show. Or we wanted to tell you about a bartender in Union Square before she was the youngest female member of Congress, AOC. Or we would tell you about a kid from California before he was the Yankees' new star or a college student before she was Amanda Gorman, the poet. And so Ozzy was always kind of reminiscent a little bit of what Wired Magazine used to be in the tech space way back in the day, if you remember that. Yeah. Um, or for some of your other listeners, they'll remember Pitchfork or The Source, music magazines, which back in the day would love to tell you about up and coming musicians before they were household names. And so Ozzy's MO early on was colorful daily newsletters that would not only catch you up, but vault you ahead. And over the last few years, We've turned some of our articles into TV shows, and we've got about a dozen on the air from, you know, Lifetime and A&E to Hulu and Amazon. Uh, we've got about a half dozen podcasts in the top 100, and we've got a very cool set of festivals called Aussie Fest. So we started as a digital magazine. We're now this broader news and entertainment company with four legs, and um, 
it was inspired a little bit in part, I, I, in some ways, good news, bad news. I had, my mom had gotten very sick. And as I mentioned, Howard, I had moved my parents from Miami, where I'd grown up, out to Mountain View. And then I'd left after I sold Achiba to go out to New York to work in television. And um, my mom, unfortunately, got very sick and she had late stage cancer. And so uh, the good folks at Stanford Hospital, uh, Sandy Srinivas and Lloyd Minor and all those guys were uh, taking great care of her. And I was waiting in the waiting room with her one day where she was looking up, as you know, now in the hospital, they have kind of a big board where they tell you when your turn is and who the doctors are. And we're waiting. And my mom was a lifelong teacher and she was kind of looking up the board, looking at me and she said, you know, you're too young just to be in doctor's offices all the time. We got to get you busy. And so we drove home down El Camino Real for any Stanford folks who still remember that from kind of Palo Alto to Mountain View. And if you remember on the right-hand side about midway through, it's kind of an office depot, Home Depot there. And we went in and bought a big whiteboard and we put it in her house. And I'm one of these people, Howard, I think out loud. I'm always, I'm kind of goodwill hunting. I'm always scratching on the board and kind of thinking out loud. And, you know, one thing led to another. And I, I felt like there was, you know, the kind of uh, anchoring that I was doing at CNN and MSNBC was, I thought sometimes important, but narrow. We talk about the same four or five stories all day long. And even when we said breaking news, I would think, is it really breaking news or is it the same thing I've been talking about for three weeks? And so when I started to think about what different would look like if you were going to reimagine news and culture and ideas for curious people, what came forth was Ozzy. And uh, uh, with, uh, with my folks watching on and uh, building the initial Ikea furniture at our Mountain View office, uh, um, you know, we, we started Ozzy, uh, my business partner uh, and I, uh, Samir Rao, uh, who's not a Stanford grad, but I'm proud to say his wife is. Uh, Ramya got a PhD at Stanford in political science. And, uh, and so, you know, Samir and I started it together and, you know, we're really proud seven years later that, that we've got something that we love. And where did the name come from? Uh, you know, there was a beautiful poem in the uh, late 1800s that um, uh, by Lord uh, Shelley, uh, whose wife was more famous because Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Right. Um, uh, but, but those of you who, are, uh, who love good stuff will remember uh, Percy Shelley. And back in those days, the upper class rich guys had their version of rap battles. But they didn't call them rap battles or ciphers. Uh, what they did was they would post these uh, poems, you could call them rap lyrics, uh, in these monthly newspapers. And so, you know, Howard would post his and Carlos would post his and Howard and Carlos would go back and forth. And um, and so this was the result of a battle. And that poem, Ozymandias, we've always interpreted it to mean think big uh, because the world is vast and interesting and lots of good stuff is happening. But be humble, lest, as the poem says, you end up too vast and legless trunks in the desert. So think big, but be humble is Ozzy's motto. We want people to think big about the world, but, but operate humbly in it. And, uh, and so we took it from this wonderful uh, British poem from 200. Okay, that's a great segue because media companies these days always seem to have a certain political bent. So if I want one version of the news, I go to MSNBC. If I want another, I go to Fox. If I want one, I go to CNN. If I want another one, I go to CNBC. I mean, I know what, exactly what I'm gonna get. Yeah. But here's what I read on your website that I found both fascinating and really affirming. Yeah. Quote, we will embrace a multi-partisan approach to the issues of the day, bringing multiple voices to every conversation, mm -hmm. even though we won't always agree with them. Mm -hmm. So do you do that? And yeah. is, that, is that sort of a, a playbook 
for how our country needs to focus on so many different issues that are tearing us apart. You know, I, I think it is, and I, and I believe in it, you know, going back to growing up in Miami and hearing all sorts of different voices and different perspectives, and they weren't even just left and right. They were generationally different. They were globally different. And, and so, you know, um, I, I grew up, I, I, I want to say kind of always open to kind of hearing where people were and, uh, uh, had wonderful uh, teachers uh, who kind of underscored that as well. And so I want to believe that that we've carried that forward. And so, yes, we will welcome um, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, Nikki Haley and Ted Cruz to Ozzy, but you'll also, you know, you'll see uh, Kamala Harris and you'll see Joe Biden and you'll see uh, Ilhan Omar. So in our final minute together, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you two questions. Who was your most surprising interviewee? I'm not going to ask the best because then you'd have to pick favorites. You can't do that. Most surprising interviewee. And who's the person you never got to interview, but wish you had. Oh, love both of those questions. And you clearly uh, established yourself as uh, the Charles Barkley of this situation. <laughs> and so a hall of famer indeed, and multi-time all-star and a colorful personality. So I appreciate that. Um, meeting Oprah and getting to interview Oprah several times as I had was special in part because of how, how kind I found her and how warm I found her in those things. And I remember the first time I went to interview her, uh, she was kind enough to invite me to her home in Chicago and she was late coming and she sent over her chef art to kind of cook for our whole crew who'd been waiting there for hours. And she knew enough to know that they probably were not only stir crazy, but starving. And so think about the kindness involved in that, Howard. And, and then when she came and we did the interview, you know, it was at the end of a long day for her. I can't even imagine all the things that must have been weighing on her. And the head of the network came too. He was so excited. He wanted to see her. And, and, and Howard, he was like a kid in a candy store. And he must have talked her ear off for an hour. And you can imagine what it's like at nine o'clock at night. It's in your house. You've got all these strangers you don't know. And you know you just want to go to sleep, right? That's all you want to do. You want to go sleep. But Oprah didn't give away any of that. She was just as kind and as generous as could be. And I really would have loved to have interviewed uh, was Nelson Mandela. I, uh, I, I think, you know, Howard, you and I think about it, in, and you're younger than I am, but, you know, imagine someone saying, Howard, at this age you are now, we're going to put Howard in jail for the next 27 years. That's just bananas. And then it's bananas that you're going to come out of there with your mind intact, probably stronger, and that you're going to be a positive person and that you're going to push your energy forward and not push it backwards. I, I, I man, oh man, uh, uh, Howard, I would have loved to have, um, uh, to, have, to have met him and then have heard him speak his distinctive tribal language, um, the clicking languages, you know, or one of the clicking language, Kosa. Uh, which would have been uh, which would have been great to hear. So uh, yeah, I probably would have put uh, Nelson Mandela uh, uh, high up there as, among the folks that uh, that I would have I would have been grateful to get to met. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app or wherever you like to find your podcasts.